Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. I'm Ryan Brady. I'm Chris Mercer. And we are sitting here in Chicago, Illinois, live, recording this episode face-to-face. And we're talking about Flowers in the Dirt from 1989. Now, a quote I pulled that I want to start with that Paul said in the documentary that accompanies the archive edition, now is never very important to most people. It's really all you got. It's really all we live in. This summarizes the whole album and just this whole era for Paul. It'd been 10 plus 10 years since he'd been on the road. John Lennon had been gone for quite some time. And he finally embraces his Beatle roots, puts an album together. It's a critical success. But we'll find that not everybody likes this album Hmm. as much as some people. Apparently, almost everybody likes it. But that's true. <laughs> that is true. So I'm just going to read through a few quotes here that we pulled, because there is a lot of material to read, to hear. Wow. <laughs> to, this is yeah. just an endless amount of material. It's an unbelievable amount of material yeah. between Elvis Costello and multiple producers. And we kind of touched on some of this last episode. Which, imagine if we had to go through all of that material in this episode, Yeah, wow. (laughs) No thanks. But it is all kind of one big five-year pile. Yes, it is. We're trying to help make sense out of all this for you and uncover hidden gems. So, on the album overall, this is Paul McCartney. This is a fantastic band, a really accomplished crew. That was the first time I'd ever done computer records. People had been doing them for a while, but it was new to me. It was an odd process going in. As we did with the Beatles and Wings, we'd make the record, mix it, finish it up, and there it was. Pretty much doing everything there and then live. But suddenly, it was all about putting everything on the computer and getting them absolutely spot on. The trouble is, it's boring. Really boring. For instance, on Motor of Love, whereas I would have just normally played my bass with a take or two, now I was sampling every note on the bass, something like Hans Zimmer would do. It heralded the beginning of the boring bit for the artist. Not for the producers, and certainly not for the engineer. 
I work like that sometimes now because sometimes it's good to work like that. Such a Paul quote. But you've got to be prepared to be occasionally bored. Yeah. So here he is talking about how bored he is at times making this album. Sitting around waiting for the producer or engineer to work out some technical problem. Or clean up a comp or who even knows. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is the beginning of this era. The next quote is, I'm not aware of needing to spend more time on this album in order to have a good selection of songs to take out on tour, though, Paul says. One of the things I do when I'm going to make a new album is I listen to the one I've just made. And that started in the Beatles. We'd go in to record Revolver and then listen to Rubber Soul just to see. It was sort of a good trick because it was like, that's what we're up to. This is where the bar set and we're going to go higher. So yeah, you do learn. You just look at something and think, oh, I sang that well. I'm going to go try and sing this one better, you know? Yeah. So what album is he? Is he looking at Press? Is he looking at Tug of War? What's he, what's he thinking? He must be looking at Press to Play. So this, he's looking back to <laughs> Press to Play. All right, well, you know, I just made Pretty Little Head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the logical follow-up to Pretty Little Head? Flowers in the Dirt. Paul, and I was telling you about this when I was watching some of the DVD material. He's a wacky guy at this mm. point. I think this is the birth of the cartoon character PR man, Paul, mm. do you see sometimes? Because he's jumping around the studio, him and Elvis Costello recording, and he's like banging on this synthesizer, just making these horrible chords, like, like Yeah. And Elvis is, you know, you know Elvis, you're Elvis a big Elvis fan. Elvis trying to write a song. Yeah. He's trying to sing My Brave Face, yeah. and Paul's going, mugging for the camera, <laughs> on a scent. So Paul's personality here, two things I remember distinctly, which in different ways show Paul's character. He said that he loved Trevor Horn's work. He always took ages to produce something. So he said he was going to give him one day and one day only. Paul likes to shake it up. And the other thing was, there was a second engineer on many of the sessions who one day fell asleep on the job. Now this is a Paul McCartney session we're talking about here. And this could have been a fireable offense, but Paul simply wrote ever ready on a piece of paper <laughs> and stuck it on the guy's chest. I hope the guy still has the piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, we just got an interview. A few listeners on our Facebook page had sent a link over and Trevor Horn has interviewed one of the 3000 producers on this album or whatever it is. Trevor Horn told Paul he only wanted to do two days in the studio. Mm -hmm. Paul remixed that story for press. Right, right. Interesting. So he's, Paul is very aware of mm. like, he's got to come back. He's had a couple of failures and this is it. Also on technology, when the CD became the format of choice back in the 80s, it was possible to cram over an hour's worth of material on there, which many people did and often to their peril. Flowers, however, sounds like a classic album at a classic album's length. And Paul on this, you had to learn very quickly not to do that because suddenly you've got 70 minutes and that was too long. I think the word went around that 40 minutes was a great length for an album. Sgt. Pepper, all the Beatles albums, all the classic albums, Big Pink, Dylan's albums, Dark Side of the Moon, they were all 20 minutes. Break, turn it over, 20 minutes. And that was always sort of a classic killer formula. With the CD, you could just keep going. There's no interval. You're asking the listener to do more. And then when you go past 40, maybe you should have stopped. Maybe you should have left them laughing. And it was a bit of a lesson. I think it took a few years to, for people to learn that because it's tempting to just go on and on. 
And this is all an outcome of the technology itself because maybe many of our listeners are aware of this, but uh, sonically there's a limit to what you can squeeze onto a side of a record. When you get to about 44 minutes total, 22 per side, that's about your limit because beyond that, the grooves get so small you can't get bass frequencies because there's not enough room to vibrate down right. there. Uh, there's a famous story about Michael Jackson crying the first time he heard Thriller with the executives because the engineer had told him, we can't squeeze this much on. Then they listened to it and it sounded really thin and bad. And Michael had to agree to drop some stuff. That's a, I, I didn't know that. I'd love to see the original and tracklist. While we're about to talk about Elvis Costello, you know, in 1986, just two albums before Spike, Elvis released King of America, which yeah. is one hour long and has 30 minutes per side on the LP. And guess what? Not a great sounding record. No, it doesn't sound good. Beautiful CD. The original CD is really gorgeous. Better than the reissues, I think. But yeah, the LP didn't sound so great. Huh. Too much, too much music. Well. So there's a reason that 40 to 44 became the standard. Yeah. And it's, I think, beyond that, funny that... <laughs> We're talking too much music and we have, we're about to go through as many songs as we're going to go through. But I guess that's the point. He was aware that he had to pare down a lot of demos. Let me ask you something. Were you old enough? Did you notice that at the no, time? No, I remember, I was buying CDs really young and I remember like the big box CDs that were as <laughs> okay, big as so, vinyls yeah, and right, yeah. like it was all packaged to compete against vinyl. I remember seeing vinyl in the stores and then things like Best Buy started to... Yeah. Things like that. It not, wasn't just Best Buy, but then it was, oh, this is the CD section. Mm -hmm. Vinyls, where, what is that? Where are those? Now you walk into a Best Buy or a Barnes & Noble, and you're like, where are the CDs? And there's vinyls everywhere again. Yeah. Chris, I see you have three copies of <laughs> Spike yeah, in have, your hands. Yeah, I have wanna... the LP and the Rhino reissue, which is recent. Not the most recent, but and I have the original CD. Uh, the original CD sounds the best of these three because Spike is a bit long. It is a bit long. But Spike, here it is. What an album. Tell us about it. Like... Yeah, I think the Elvis fans maybe have a mixed feeling about this album yeah kind of depends on how much of an elvis purist you are <laughs> and what you does know? that mean like attractions uh, and uh, elvis purist would be yeah into my aim is true and this year's model and blood and the chocolate. first five albums man yeah Those and are the records exactly and the more hardcore things like blood and chocolate that came later spike is very ornate and very heavily produced i would not say overproduced but heavily produced Big orchestrations, big arrangements, lots of instruments, lots, not really effects exactly, but studio, yeah. you know, miking stuff. There's a goofy guitar thing, So but they're it, not all over the place. Exactly. It's also stylistically very eclectic. So its closest cousin in his previous work would be Imperial Bedroom. It doesn't go for the Beatles-esque grandiosity of Imperial Bedroom, but it's similar in the size and scale of the arrangements and it's a great album it is a great album and there really aren't very many duds on here these guys met when they were making imperial bedroom 
and tug of war if they were down the hall, the hall from each yeah. other. Yeah. And then again, when Elvis is working on Punch the Clock and Paul's working on Pipes of Peace. Yeah. And Elvis and Paul got along, or did they get along? There's a lot of mixed stories of this era. It's hard to say. We said in the last episode that Elvis had been very diplomatic, but it's unclear to me under what exact circumstances Elvis left the project. Did he leave in a huff? Did he finally put his foot down about the production? So Paul had heard Spike. It's a modern record at the time. I mean, that, that's a big Warner Brothers album, I big think. Big Warner Brothers. It's first, was his first, first Warner Warners, Brothers. right? That's right. So Paul and Elvis hook up and they write all of these songs together. A really great list of songs. And it was Paul's manager's idea at the time because, you know, Paul turned in a couple of duds. And Paul was talking about he enjoyed that he relinquished some of this control to Elvis. But as we just found out, not everything that Paul says is the reality of what happened. Sure. He's flipping Trevor Horn stories. Elvis is being diplomatic. I bet there was some tension between the two guys because we got good music out of it. I'm sure the personality you hear in the songs isn't, you know, that's exaggerated, but I do mm-hmm. think he's that person to an extent. I know that Paul had some problems with Elvis's production style because they had written all these songs and Elvis was going to produce this next album. and. Elvis was turning in something that would have sounded cool maybe in the late 90s or early 2000s. Well, listen, everyone who knows Elvis knows that his first string of albums up through about 81, up through Trust, is a pretty raw, aggressive material and stripped down. And of course, sometimes rather ornate songs, but in terms of the production stripped down, made this big album with Jeff Emmerich, our very own Jeff Emmerich, as it were, Imperial Bedroom, then famously made these two albums, Punch the Clock, that's where Every Day I Write the Book comes from. And so then he made Goodbye Cruel World, which has The Only Flame in Town on it, which is a duet with Daryl Hall with a very cheesy video. Yeah. And I like that song. There's nothing wrong with that song. Well, sure, but- It's El- not a purist song. Elvis hated the production on those albums hated it and Goodbye Cruel World he considers to this day his worst album. So he came out of those two albums in 83, 84, interestingly, where he met Paul in the same studios, and came out of that and did King of America in 86, which, let me tell you something. Okay. (laughs) Life-changing album for me. Okay, why is that? Well, it was 1986. It was Rick Astley time. Everything was high 80s. Everything sounded like shit. And Elvis comes along with this album that sounds like it was recorded in an aircraft hangar that is all acoustic bass. Obviously, the band's in the same, in a big cavernous room together. It's mostly acoustic, very folky. I just couldn't believe somebody just made this album.
makes an album with the attractions, Blood and Chocolate, that is one of the most brutally raw, not just angry, but bitter albums I know of. You can play a sec, you know, you can play Nevermind the Bullocks, and it sounds angrier, I guess. It's not the venomous, yeah. psychological angle, and the, the raw lyrics, there's no effects, there's no reverb on his voice yeah, in that's that whole true. It's right in front. It sounds like it's just plugged in direct to the mixer, you know, right, to, right into a preamp. It's, yeah. yeah. More than I do, I want you. I might as well be useless for all it means to you. I want you. Did you call his name out as it held you down? want you oh no my darling not with that clown I want you I want you you've had your fun you don't get well no more I want you no one who wants you could want you so he's going from that at the end of 86 to Spike and working with Elvis. So mm. he's in an interesting place. Absolutely know? is. They're both trying to figure something out. So it's good that they found each other. And even Paul said he's got a bit of Lennon in him. It's like a direct quote. And those demos, how about those demos? Yeah. The demos are incredible. This is some of the best material McCartney was involved in in the 80s. So it's, it's an album's worth plus of songs, between it, 10 and 15 songs. And it would be a lovely album. Yeah. Wow. yeah. A really lovely album. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, I, I have a quote on this from Elvis. I don't know if Paul will remember this, but 12 years ago, maybe 13, we had a meeting at MPL, and he discussed perhaps releasing these recordings then. So this was written in 2016, 17. And at the end of the day, he wrote on a piece of paper, listen to demos, review demos, write more songs, record more songs, release songs. Then he tore it in half and gave me the other half, like a to-do list. But we never acted on it. I don't know. I put it in a book on a shelf in the office at home, and then I forgot where the book was. And then we moved house. I'm still looking for that handwritten note. So Paul was aware of how good these songs were. They both were. Yeah. But there's some trepidation about... Sounds like they, they like each other just fine, but they couldn't really work together on an album. Yeah. And Elvis, I, I don't know where to place him because he was about to do Spike, but he'd just done these two really raw records. But mm -hmm. what I hear in the demos, above all, and this is a whole topic, 
Elvis wants Paul to return to middle period Beatles. Mm-hmm. He wants help, Beatles for sale, yeah. rubber soul. That's what he's looking for. Smart, tight rock songs. And it's true that Paul hadn't really revisited that part of his legacy as much. It's still there. We can still point to songs, but the Merseyside harmony. The Mersey harmony, I was just going to say. That's exactly what he tried to pull back out of him. Right. He literally pulled the Hoffner out of the mothballs. That's right. And he's like, well, you want to play this again? That's right. My brave face. Kinds of Beatles fans who love Elvis Costello, they like the they middle like period. They like the middle period because it's the raw the, rock and roll and live it, it band hasn't, stuff. It hasn't gotten pretentious and overreaching okay. like the late stuff, but it's not kiddie music yeah. like the early stuff. That it's makes the sense. Sweet, it's the sweet period. That makes sense. I think there's an aesthetic that's kind of an Elvis Costello-y yeah. aesthetic that I mean, is were, middle period centric. They were covering one after 909. They were definitely going after that exact thing. So this album, aside from Elvis, has a lot of producers. Nine of them, if you include Paul himself. So Mitchell Froom, he first shows up on Spike. Elvis introduces Paul to Mitchell. He produced Spike first and then ends up producing Mighty Like a Rose. So those demos, So Like Candy and Playboy to a Man, end up on that album. His history is he's produced The Course, Randy Newman, Pearl Jam, and even recently Phantom Planet and Ron Sexsmith. And perhaps most famously, Crowded House. Amazing records. And Paul liked Crowded House, right? Yes. It was Paul's manager's girlfriend or wife (laughs) was a big fan. And that's how he got also looped in with this whole Elvis thing. So the first three Crowded House albums. I'm, I'm going to list a few songs, and if you guys want to go hunt some of these down. Crowded House, first album, uh, everybody's heard this, Don't Dream It's Over. Everyone's heard that too many times. Yeah. Other tracks to check out, Mean to Me, World Where You Live, Something So Strong. Yeah. Great, great. The next record, Temple of Low Man, I Feel Possessed, Into Temptation, Sister Madly, that's the one. And better be home soon. And then Woodface, the third record. It's only natural. Fall at your feet. Weather with you. Whispers and moans. I basically list the whole album. <laughs> Four seasons in one day. That's the real one to check out. And as sure as I am. The next producer, the third producer, if you're counting Paul, is Neil Dorfsman. And um, he's connected to Sting, Dire Straits, Bruce Springsteen, also Randy Newman, Tears for Fears, then more recently, Bjork, and They Might Be Giants. And you just pulled out Nothing Like the Sun. Yeah. This one was a big one for me in ninth grade. I think it was ninth grade. 
87, right? So this is right around the same time that we're discussing. This is the greatest Sting album, in my personal opinion. Okay. And maybe the best product of all the police kind of material. More than synchronicity. I think this album is fantastic. Really a wonderful album. There's a lot of there's a lot of range of production here, but it does all have this smooth, slick 80s style. I wouldn't call it high 80s, but it's definitely very produced. Let's put it meticulous, clean production. What are your favorite songs off of that for everybody to go check out? Be Still My Beating Heart, Straight to My Heart, Sister Moon. Oh, that's a good one. And Fragile. Go check that record out. Also, I mean, Bruce Springsteen's The River. What a strange thing for Neil Dorfman to be on. Is he a co-producer? He must be a co-producer with John Landau. And then Landed Dreams by Randy Newman. I wonder if The River was a case where Dorfman was mainly an engineer, but his contribution was really big, so they listed him as producer. Well, every interview with Neil, he's very, he's a sharp guy. All these guys are sharp guys. Sure. So Elvis Costello also... This is like a half kind of thing because you'll see the 88 recording sessions we have. Some of those tracks that end up out in 89 are built upon these studio sessions that Paul did with Elvis. They didn't try to redo them. So Elvis counts. Trevor Horn, Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. He wrote and sang Video Killed the Radio Star and the band The Buggles, which is what the first music video on MTV. Yes is... 90125. The official death of Yes as a prog rock band. I like that album. It's <laughs> a, a pop true, album. As a true prog rock band. Yeah, it's no longer. There's a, some proggy stuff on there. A lot of people say he's the man who invented the 80s. I don't think that's wrong. Owner of a Lonely Heart is about as 80s as you get. Owner of a Lonely Heart. All those big orchestra stabs. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool stuff. I mean, Trevor Horn seems like he was kind of a cagey guy from the interviews I've read, but... Lipson, he used to work closely with Trevor Horn, also worked on Frankie, goes to Hollywood, The Animal, Cher, Grace Jones, as I mentioned, Annie Lennox, The Pet Shop Boys, more recently, Kelly Clarkson, Jeff Beck, Hans Zimmer, Pharrell Williams, you know. And we're not done yet. We got more producers to go through. Chris Hughes, he's best known for the Tears for Fear songs from the Big Chair. 
everybody wants to rule the world. It's so funny that that's the song referenced and it ends up, he ends up producing something like Motor of Love, you know? <laughs> kind of the opposite. Cullum, he was Hugh's partner, also worked on Adam and the Ants, Wang Chung, and Rick Ocasek from The Cars. And then, as we discussed on Return to Pepperland, Mr. David Foster, there's other things we didn't mention. He worked with The Tubes, Boz Skaggs, Look at What You've Done to Me, Chicago, as Chris mentioned in the last episode. In 1985, Rolling Stone magazine named Foster the master of bombastic pop kitsch. That's that is you, well put. You you basically said that last last show. Olá, Rosinha, só quero dizer que eu gosto de você, que quero abandonar essa vida e me casar. Você me enfeitiçou, amor, e agora o que vai ser? Não deixe meu coração sofrer. Olá, Rosinha, só quero dizer que eu gosto de você E quero abandonar essa vida e me casar Você me enfeitiçou, amor, e agora o que vai ser? Não deixe meu coração sofrer Não vou fazer mais bobagem nem querer mais outro amor Só você, minha Claire Fisher? This is an interesting person. Yes. Why don't you tell us about her? Claire Fisher worked as a as an arranger on some kind of important stuff, or, or with some important artists. So, Joao Gilberto's 1991 album, he's a, one of the great, he's probably the great bossa nova guitarist singer. Yeah. Joel Gilberto. He produced an album for him in 1991. He was involved with Robert Palmer, Stan Kenton, mm. that's important, Tony Braxton, and Al Jarreau, and perhaps most significantly from our point of view, he did the arrangements on Under the Cherry Moon by Prince and Graffiti Bridge by Prince. So this is the story, and we'll get back into this, where Paul heard that stuff and said, oh, this L.A., this L.A., Claire Fisher made these orchestral arrangements, and Linda was like, I'm not interested, because she thought 
it was some LA blonde woman <laughs> making these arrangements. Right. And then when she found out it was an old guy, <laughs> like an old Hollywood guy, she's like, yeah, why don't you go to LA? And Paul's like, well, that's wives for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So from there, Phil Ramone, as we had mentioned last episode, Billy Joel's guy. And I pulled a couple things. He did a lot of movie productions, and I had no idea that he produced the recording sessions for like Ghostbusters, the soundtrack, or On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the Bond film. So we're connected back to Bond again. And that kind of connects up with the Broadway cast recording. New York. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a New York guy. So that is all of the producers. And then the, the players on this record, this is where Hamish Stewart, you know, he was a guy in the average white band. He's a very good singer, and Paul even says so. Can handle harmony lines anywhere, and he's a really good guitarist. And I didn't realize until we were digging on, in on this album how much Paul used him for some of those high harmonies. Mm. It's not Paul, it's, it's him. How about that? Chris Witten plays the drums, and then Kevin Armstrong. He's only on the 87 sessions where we'll pull this apart for you and figure it out. So before we get into the album, after we set this up properly, Chris, what do you think about this album? So I'm looking forward today to pushing back a little okay. against the narrative. Against the narrative. Yeah. In my opinion, this is a solid three out of five star type album. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's London town quality, right. approximately. Okay. Or, quick aside, Ryan and I have talked a lot about whether you need to divide McCartney's work into two or three big periods and sure. compare the albums to each other within the periods. So I don't really know how to compare Flowers to London Town. I can tell you I like London Town better. So for me, this is a nice but flawed album. And the flaws mainly have to do with the production. Right. Now, some of the songs are weak, in my opinion, too, but it's the production that drives me batty on this album. Even some of the producers say that, some of the interviews. They go oh. back and they're like, I wish I could remix My Brave Face or <laughs> That Day Is Done or any of these. Yeah. Well, there is a dividing line here, and it's spelled out. It's the technology. Yes. Paul has had a lot of failures. We're living in a Lenin-free world. George Harrison recently had a hit. Paul doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. He's not the top of the heap anymore. He's not A number one. George is A number one right Ooh. now while he's in the studio. Ouch. He doesn't know. Yeah. I think this album is the best of this period we've been discussing. Okay. Starting in 84. Okay. From 84 to 93. So you like this better than Press to Play? That's a tough question. Because the narrative is That's you're definitely tough. supposed to. You're the, supposed to. The, the narrative is that this is some kind of comeback, but we just talked about some huge hits in 87. Yeah. Where's the comeback? I think it's because of the tour he goes on. Oh, hmm. uh, so he's back. He's got a in new the album. Public. Yeah. Paul's out there. Big mullet. These Weird. songs are on the radio in America, yeah. which once upon a long ago was not. And Paul hadn't been on tour. In America since 1976. Yes. England, Europe, yeah. 79. Right. So you're talking over a decade. You haven't seen a Beatle. The whole world, not only just the music business has changed. And I think what happened is that because of the commercial failures of Broad Street and Press to Play, mm -hmm. the narrative that he's finally made a great album again, <laughs> but it's not such a great album. And here, here's my 
like bigger overview problem with this moment in right. Paul's work? You see, for some people, this album may be the beginning of a great period for him because it depends on what you're into with Paul. I like eccentric, wacky Paul. Yeah. I like the idea I put on a McCartney record and God only knows what's coming next. Sure. And Flowers in the Dirt is the beginning of a period where he, he almost completely abandons the wackiness. No more, double, no more double songs, you know, no more strange little transition tracks. That's all gone. Oh, yeah. There's no Magneto Entertainium Man anymore. Unfortunate. Unfortunately. <laughs> I, it's not that that's a great song, but to get something that weird, that eccentric, it's gone. Yeah. We get a little resurgence in 2007, 2008 of Wacky Paul, but he has traded adventure for consistency. He's traded adventure for consistency. So this is the Paul we know today. That's right. This is the guy in the Beatles cover band that he's had for longer than Wings and the Beatles. And is there a song from this period that he even plays live anymore? Does he play Put It There still? No. That would be about it. Figure of eight? Nope. Hmm. <laughs> I can't think of one. Does he play Cow? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> This is another case where, however mixed our feelings might be about the final product, the amount of material under the surface is shocking, and the quality yes. of some of it is really impressive. Let's dive right in to track one, side one, My Brave Face. Froome Dorfman production, recorded September and October 1988 in Olympic Studios, and was released as a single. Quite a way to open an album, isn't it? Strong. Very strong. And this is about as Beatles as you can get, that whole, take me to that place, take me to mm. that place. And the what's that you're doing, dung, 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 yeah. dung.
I love that lyric, I've been hitting the town, and it didn't hit back. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a signal that Paul is back a bit. You know, he really needed somebody like Elvis Costello to kick him up to the level of songwriting that he's at. Even though some of these songs don't really make it, this song, I think this one's really good. It's a good song. Yeah. I like it just fine. I agree, though, that the mix... It's very 80s, right? It's a little aggressive, yeah. It's a little spiky and hard-edged and kind of aggressive, yeah. The effects are a little overwhelming. There's some annoying delays <laughs> and echoes and flourishes that don't do anything. Absolutely. So the song was recorded in two or three days, Paul. The song was cut as a quartet with Paul playing the bass and singing at the same time, and most of the vocal is live. According to the Put It There documentary, Elvis Costello requested McCartney bring his Hofner violin bass back, which he hadn't played for years. And Paul still uses the bass. So this really stuck with him, I guess. He has a great bit, I think it's in the archive edition, where he's talking about how lightweight that bass is and how it changes your playing when the instrument itself is light. The bass, have you ever played a Hofner? I've not. They're garbage. Yeah. (laughs) They're garbage little guitars. And that's the whole story. He's a left-handed guy. He needed something symmetrical. He supposedly bought a right-handed one. I love this house. Yes. Uh, Dorfsman said, I remember one day we're overdubbing bass on something, and I got really frustrated because I could not get it to sound like the Beatles. I remember asking Jeff Emmerich how he recorded it, and he didn't want to tell me. (laughs) Got an Ebo on there by David Rhodes. There's some kind of sax on there by somebody. Paul plays the tambourine, and Neil Dorfsman, there's a quote. He's like, I couldn't believe how good Paul was at the tambourine. But all these producers, I, I forget who it was. There's like, he's the best guy to be in a band with, Paul, because he just picks up an instrument and he has all these ideas and everything he plays is right. Mm. Kind of goes back to, the thing. remember where Paul's talking about the 86 interview, the, was it Q interview? Oh God, the amazing Q magazine. He's just like, oh, yeah. I'm always aware that I can play it better than them, mm-hmm. but you got to be political. And There's this amazing interview. You can find it on YouTube, Q Magazine 1986. And it is the most genuine Paul McCartney interview either of us have ever heard. It's really nice. He sounds like himself. There's no, I don't know, PR mugging or silliness. And he's quite raw about some Beatles issues. Yeah. He really kind of comes down on the other Beatles and really defends his side of the whole thing. It's, it's quite interesting. So this thing, My Brave Face, was released as the first single the 8th of May, 1989. And some say it's the most popular song from this album. That's conjecture. It peaked at number 18 in the UK a week after its debut and number 25 in the US seven weeks after the debut. 25, so it's a top 40 hit, and it was his last top 40 hit until 2014. You know what broke it? No. Kanye West's only one. That Hmm. would be the one. Wow, interesting. So Kanye brought Paul back up. From My Brave Face to Kanye West, that's how much time passed. Home notes and for you. 
the table like other songs from Flowers in the Dirt, despite the song's chart success, to date, it has not been included on any McCartney compilation album. Not a single song from this album. How about that? Yeah, what's that about? Such a beloved album, and yet he kind of ignores it these days. Yeah, he really does. Maybe he feels the way we do, that it's really of the time. Costello was too lo-fi indie for McCartney's sensibility at the time. When they first recorded My Brave Face in early 1988, Costello wanted to double-track the backing vocals, then drop them down a couple levels of quality, like how Keith Richards created the raw power of Street Fighting Man by recording through a cheap tape recorder. McCartney passed on this whole idea. Mm. So Elvis kept trying to bring him It's a super back. cool idea. Yeah. So yeah, this was actually not only the last top 40 hit for McCartney, but for any of the Beatles. Mm. So George had his big hit. Paul, <laughs> being Paul... Snuck back in there. Neither Free as a Bird nor Real Love made it to the top 40? I don't believe so. How about that? Maybe in the UK. Mm. So this was released in a few different configurations, a seven-inch single with Flying to My Home as the B-side, and then some of the other versions include I'm Gonna Be a Wheel Someday and Ain't That a Shame. Reached number three in the Italian singles charts, four in Norway, four on the US Billboard AC, Adult Contemporary. So yeah, this was this was a hit for Paul. Well, something to note about this song is that supposedly some of the more McCartney-ish sounding things here were written by Elvis, kind of channeling Paul. Yeah. So the little bridge, ever since you went away, that sounds really McCartney and it's mm-hmm. Elvis. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. right? So the music video uh, was nominated for Best Video at the 1990 Brit Awards, but... That was it. So yeah. minor chart success. And I remember hearing it on the radio all the time when this came out. And you'd hear it, like you said, in restaurants and grocery stores. <laughs> and it was it was everywhere for a little while. I needed loving. I needed a friend. I needed something that would be there in the end. All the rough ride to heaven. Want to get inside. What will I do? Oh, on the rough ride to heaven. I want to get inside to be with you. Rough Ride, track two, this is where Trevor Horn shows up, and this is recorded December 21 to 24, 1987, and there's some more work done on it at Hog Hill in 88, from January 2nd to the 21st. I don't know if you saw in the documentary, Paul plays it on acoustic guitar, he like pulls an acoustic guitar out of nowhere, he's like, it's me trying to be Big Bill Bronzy, and mm-hmm. he's, he saw some bluegrass program where he saw a guy play a song. It was all one chord, two verses and a guitar riff. And so he brought this to them like, oh, let's do this one first. Oh, this reminds me of On The Way or something like that. Right. Sort of a 
Not very substantive sort of blues jam thing. Not my kind of thing, but I guess it's not too badly produced. I don't like the synth-based. That's Lipson. That's Steve Lipson playing that. And mm. Trevor Horn, I believe, is on the drums, or maybe it's reverse. But it's it's live them in the studio, Paul playing the guitar. Mm. And Pitchfork, the website, this is their quote on the song. Any momentum the first track My Brave Face provides is crushed by the stiff synth funk of Rough Ride, <laughs> a lips and horn production that should have been relegated to a B-side, but instead exists as the worst second track ever released on an album. Yeah, it's, it does not offend me very much, but I tend to skip it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's filled with little double entendres, you know, Rough Ride to Heaven and all that, mm-hmm. like... Want to get inside? What will I do? Mm-hmm. It's Paul doing that thing he does that Denny was talking about where he's very clever with his lyrics. And Rough Ride to Heaven, that's kind of a recasting of the flowers and the dirt idea. Yes, absolutely. I used to hate this song. When oh, yeah? I first got this album, I, could, I did not understand why it was on the album. I always just thought it was a bit bland. I like it more now. And actually Trevor Horn, I don't know if it's Trevor Horn just kind of being a dick. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is the best song on Flowers in the Dirt. Oh, okay. Well, So he... Of all the tracks that he made, and he worked on, we'll we'll get to that, but this is his favorite one. Kind of bizarre. So let's move right on to You Want Her Too, because I know you have something to say about that song. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the idea of Elvis and Paul recapturing a kind of vinegar and honey, if I could make a sunny reference. Sure. But I don't like hearing Elvis Costello in a self-caricature situation, which is what this sounds like to me. I get the idea it's supposed to be a single person, you know, exploring conflict in his head, but it kind of sounds like Elvis comes in to sing the nasty lines. Yeah. And <laughs> Paul tried to replace him because he was aware of that. Yeah. And he couldn't do it. Interesting. He couldn't get the snarl out of himself. Yeah. They're like, we'll just leave those in. Well, it's a, it's a great track recorded January through February. And then again in September, October 1988 at Hog Olympic and then also Sunset Sound. that weird Elvis intro and outro. And I mentioned the wackiness was gone, but there's a little wisp of it when the big band comes in for no reason. Well, yeah, that was that's that's Richard Niles. Exactly. And they had that whole big section where they like Richard Niles wrote a whole piece and they had a big band thing mm-hmm. and they, it's just a little the biggest tease in the world, I <laughs> think funny. they say. Yeah. That's crazy. It was going to supposed to go on for a minute and a half and there's 15 seconds. It sounds like Paul yeah, I like kind of like that. Yeah, me too. This song, well, it's another Mitchell Froom, and I think the Mitchell Froom stuff on this album actually sounds pretty decent. Maybe it's a little more lush than I'd like, or a little more sterile at times than I'd like. But Mitchell Froom's good, and these songs do it. These re- these records do a decent job 
at least compared to the others, of capturing the tracks. Yeah, I think the bridge to the song is amazing. Mm. It just kind of explodes and then floats. It's a bizarre, eccentric song. It's like not like a pop song in any kind of way. But I think that's why people were so excited to get this album, because it does give them that Beatles thing, where it's like, this is not rock and roll. Yeah. This is not quite pop. What is? It's not musical music. Right. It kind of fits in this weird slice of the Venn diagram. Where does this go? Yeah. She makes me do things I don't want to do. I don't know why I should be telling you. I know that you want it too. I know that you want it too. I know that you want it Well, when you listen to the old demo, the Elvis and Paul demo, you get a stronger sense that it's a help-esque, you know, folk song. I would love to hear like a Beatles cover band take on the McCartney McManus Mm. records in the style of the Beatles. Like, do it from 65, man. Yeah. Anybody out there in a Beatles cover band, you got some work to do, send it our way. So track four, Distractions. This is a great song written in 1987 at the piano. Not a piano song the way we have it. Recorded April through July and then again in November of 1988 at Hog Hill and Mad Hatter. Mad Hatter where they did the overdubs. I think the demo's cool, but how about this record, huh? This is a really beautiful record. The demo is more in the style of straight up soft rock. Mm-hmm. But this is cast in a bossa nova style, and he got a good arranger, Claire Fisher, as we've discussed, to do the orchestrations. And it is such a beautiful vocal. This is the great vocal on the album, I think. If you can answer this, you can have the
understand if people think it's a bit a bit soft but i think for me this is a treat a great tune verses are in d minor then makes a modulation to b flat major mm. the chorus and starts the chorus with that penny lane chorus one three four five thing before kind of going off somewhere else yeah yeah really nice there's also another key change forget where it goes to but there's three keys here and i love it when the verse and the chorus are in a different key mm. i love that yeah, it's. I feel like I'm covering some ground then. Yeah. It's there's. It's a mature, very mature song for Paul. It it's is. not something he could have written for Wings or even for the Beatles. I don't think. Right. So. Yeah. But this is furthering the domesticity theme. Yes. On this album, which we got a little on my brave face. Actually, it's his house husband at this point on his own. You know, I don't know if he's a house husband, but he's he's a single man all of a sudden dealing yeah. with that. And Rough Ride maybe has some hints of marriage. And now, uh, now Distractions is about the difficulty of maintaining a marriage with lots of distractions. Right. So this was meant to be the third single from the album with Lindiana as the B-side. But it was replaced by Figure of Eight. Mm-hmm. So that would have been interesting. I wonder if Distractions would have been a hit. Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It's, it's an album track. Yeah. Yeah. 
So track five, We Got Married. We talked about this a bit on the last episode. This is the David Foster track, which was also... So Dorfman came in and cleaned it up a bit. He mixed it and finished it. Well, great bridge, great vocal mm-hmm. from Paul. You don't like this one as much. How do you feel about this one? Uh, I didn't really like it until I read that Paul had... Well, see, again, who knows if this is real or not? Paul's like, well, this is a John and Sin song, like Cynthia Lennon. Okay. You know, Paul had heard about like making love in the afternoon from John Lennon. He's like, oh, I didn't think that you could do something like that. <laughs> I think you he know? found out a couple years later that he could. But yeah. No. I think the video is okay. There's all these promotional videos and it's like them live. And mm-hmm. Paul's wearing that like pseudo military outfit and a long mullet and the Washburn bass. And mm-hmm. it's cool. It's cool stuff, but it, some of this stuff feels like corporate rock to me. Here's the thing, production-wise, this is one of the ones that just drives me out of my mind. We'll see even more extreme production later in the album, but the instrumental interludes in here is some of the most outrageous, you know, in-crawling 80s production you can come up with. Yeah. Oh, God. And as far as the lyrics, remember how creative and quirky Eat It Home was and the way yeah. that it described domesticity? And think about how literal and watered down these lyrics are compared to that. I like nowadays every night flashes by the speed of light. But I don't like how he finishes it by saying living life, loving wife. Mm-hmm. We got married. I like the, the sense that like time is slipping away from Paul. Life and wife, can I just say? Even worse than life and knife. <laughs> you know, we got some <laughs> shit about that on Twitter. Somebody was like, hey, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have to. <laughs> <laughs> Step up to the mic and defend yourself. Read, read some of Stephen Sondheim's writing if you want to know something about rhymes. Yeah. He has a lot to say about it. Look, when we say a rhyme is good or not good, part of what we're talking about is how overused is that rhyme. If you're a smart lyricist, you don't put life in a rhyming position in the first place. And if you do, you find a way to surprise the listener, maybe with a word that 
carries over to the next line. So you get if and then something. Decipher, you could rhyme life and decipher. See, that's a good rhyme. Life and knife? Mm -mm. Life and decipher. There you go. That's the answer to the criticism on Twitter. Got to find that. He was pissed, that guy. But it's all right. Life and drum and fife would be a good rhyme. <laughs> well, yeah, the whole, it's a loving machine. It, it doesn't work out if you don't prelude work prelude to motor it. of love. Yeah. Well, I think some, some motor of love's lyrics. Uh, what the hell is a motor of love? But yeah, like- Not well, just a loving machine, though. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned David Gilmore's on this one. It's middle of the road, 80s McCartney. It's super it's ambitious. Bad. Yeah. It's a really big production and I don't mind it. Okay. I don't seek it out. But it's when about it comes on a par on, with Rough Ride to me, so yeah. it's one I tend to skip. When it comes on the album, I don't I don't hate it. Mm. I like the album okay. as a whole mm -hmm. because more so we'll see in a second where right now, track six, put it there. Wow. This is a great song. And this is fine production. No complaints. That's what a father said to his young son. I don't care if it weighs a ton. As long as you and I are here, put it there. Paul wrote this in the winter of 1987 as he sat on the balcony in the Swiss Alps, right? This is the quote. In the evening, after you've been skiing all day, you take those big heavy boots off and sit on the balcony with a drink cooling out. I'd get my guitar and just sit on the balcony. And that's how I wrote this very simple song. And this is a song for his father. It's based on a quote from his father. Put it there if it weighs a ton. Yeah. And he says, you know, it's something he gets a bit choked up. It's, it's a really nice lyric. It is. And the way it was released, February 5th, 1990, the B-sides were Mama's Little Girl and same time next year. As long as you and I are here, put it there. As long as you and I are here, put it there. You know, put it there if it weighs a ton. And Paul said, like, his dad would say crazy things like, Dad, why do we have to do this? He's like, his dad would be like, because there's no hair on a seagull's chest. Mm. Like all these little phrases, so... Beautiful guitar, beautiful acoustic guitar sound on this. Mm -hmm. I like the little snippet of string quartet that comes in. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's some string quartet. <laughs> I'm down with that. So this song reached number 32 on the UK singles charts. And that's it. That wraps up side A. Hey, everyone. Ryan here. Small commercial break. Don't worry. This won't take too long. If you're listening to this podcast, then you are probably a bit like Chris and me. You're a huge Paul McCartney fan. The good news is we are well on our way with this current season. We asked for donations a few episodes ago, and they just keep pouring in. Believe it or not, most people are donating around $50. We're about to clear $1,000. Thank you all for your support. To keep providing you with this show, we need your help. You have three options. One, keep listening for free, which is totally cool. Two, keep listening for free, but tell your friends about the show. 
Email them. Social media. Word of mouth. Send a pigeon. Who knows? Three? Send us a small donation. We put every single dollar back into this because we want you to have the best listening experience possible. We're asking this because we want to stay ad-free. Simple as that. Just one more thing. Even telling one person you know about this podcast would be a huge favor to us. They can be fans of podcasts, music, the Beatles, or none of the above. Sharing our show with one person would be huge. Believe it or not, most people that aren't even McCartney fans love our show. It's a true testament to what we're all building together. Visit our website, takeitawaypodcast.com, and click on the donation link at the top of the page. Thank you all for listening, and now let's get back to Take It Away. So if I'm 17, 16 or 17, and I'm listening to this for the first time, I'm listening on a CD in this case, it turns out, but by the time I get to this point in the album, I'm feeling optimistic. Right, so you flip that thing over, and you're face-to-face with Figure of Eight. Head over heels for this song. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, I like it okay. The only thing that bugs me about it, the production's a little much, but at this point, it's almost a given with these songs. I, I, I can stop saying it, right? Yeah. <laughs> production's a little much at times. What mainly bothers me is the to-you-like vocal mugging, which too much of the song is that. And when he comes in, I think it's the second or third chorus with the double-tracked actual tune, I find myself thinking, oh, give me more of that. Yeah. mug a little but come on well, that's how they mix well so there's like a lot of contention about this song paul brought it in as like a 1950s or 1960s rock and roll tune you got me dancing in a figure of and they recorded that right and paul with the live bass and a drum so they were doing it live and paul just kind of went for it in the rock and roll style trevor horn and steve come in and i guess from like seven to midnight erase everything 
and change the chords and make it sound more like a U2 record. Wow. Paul came in the next day, lost his mind. He's like, what have you done to my song? I want a rock and roll record. And Trevor Horn was like, well, go find somebody else that can make a rock and roll record because we don't like rock and roll and we want to do this because this is what's in. And he said, okay, well, just show me what you did then. Wow. And then have you heard the Bob Clear Mountain mix of this? It's closer to what you want. This was mixed with that thing loud, the whole like, because he's not singing the melody. Right. He's singing like the ad libs or like the melody. And you're like, what is this thing? Yeah. Clear Mountain, those other parts, that's my favorite version of the song. I can, I can listen to that song on repeat 50 times in a row. It's a really catchy, like, good song. And it was released as a single with a B-side, Ure Le Sole, or how, how do you say it? Ure La Sole. Ure La Sole. Yeah. That's the B-side. Released. Or at least that's what I'm going with based on the way he sings. Ure Well, let's go, let's go with that because yeah. that's the closest <laughs> we're going to get. November 13th, 1989. Now, figure of eight was... I just noticed looking through the notes last night, not a huge hit. I remember it being on the radio a lot, but it could just be that I went to that concert (laughs) and I just remember it as a huge hit because he was playing it up so much. 42 in the UK and 92 in the US. I must be mistaken. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I can't remember if it's this song. I'm looking this up. He really showcased it in the tour. Didn't he start the show with Figure of Eight? Yeah. yeah. And people would cheer and they're like, oh, yeah. I think it's great. I think this maybe can't sing it anymore. Because that's a tough one to sing. But he's singing Helter Skelter. and He's singing My Love with the high A Maybe skills. I'm amazed.
Track eight is the song This One, written 2-2-87, recorded April and July and September and November, Hog Hill and then Olympic, respectively. The B-side was The First Stone, which is a Hamish co-write. Good Sign, I Wanna Cry and I'm In Love Again, released 7-17-1989. How do you feel about this tune? I like this one. Melodically, it's a tad flimsy. Mm. It's that scale. Mm. I mean, it's you know not very sophisticated that way and predictable. I was playing it for a friend the other night who was hearing it for the first time and singing along already, mm. right? So it's one of those tunes that sounds like it always existed, but it's a nice Beatles-y record. Yeah. The verse tune is really fetching. Yeah. So I'm, I'm down with this. Yeah. Yes, I actually have the framed lyrics up on in my mm. kitchen right now. I'm not crazy about this swan. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like it. This one's about regrets. You're always off in some other moment, either the past or dreaming of the future. Now is never very important to much people, but it's all you've got. It's all we live in. And Paul goes on to say, you have an argument. You need to think if I'd only been smart, if I could have just said you're right, if I'd only sent some flowers, which is something that I am not inclined to do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, so, but yeah, like this single only reached 94 on Billboard as well. It did not do a good job. And there's an, I remember this one being on the radio or on VH1 or something. (laughs) It got some play. Yeah. Unless it's like figure of eight and I'm just misremembering. No, it did. It it got about the same amount of play as the other one, which just didn't do as well on the charts. Didn't sell as many. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A conversation between an American radio DJ and McCartney's publicist, Jeff Baker, the DJ... How about the next single? This one could be a great choice. Baker says, the single's been out, and it's this one, and it's been out for a month. Mm. So okay, there was awareness, but I guess the promotion of the album wasn't as good as it could have been. Burn the midnight lamps down until the dawn. I'll keep watch until I'm sure you're Next track is Don't Be Careless Love. This one fares much better in the demo. Yeah, I, I don't really like this one at and all. By the way, I had a, a thought listening to this as part of the review. Is this the first appearance of Old Man Paul voice? Could be. It's, it's a little rough. It's got a little driving rain, kind of struggling a little bit, feeling on it at times. The lamp burns down and out. I'm getting pretty tired.
I know some people have complimented the singing on this, but I hear a little touch of Old Man Paul starting to yeah, creep in. It doesn't sound that great. It's an interesting song, and I love the demo. This has more We Got Married-ish overproduction on it. It really doesn't belong here. Funny tricks on you. You might place funny tricks on you. You might place funny tricks on you. I think the demo is superior to what we ended up with. Yeah, it like doesn't. Yeah go for the chorus like he does on the demo. They right. take the chorus down. Right, right. and the, the production change going from the verse into the chorus is aggressive. You're in a kind of gospel acapella mode, and then all of a sudden you get crashed with a lot of synthesizers mm. and big drums. Middle eight's good, though. Oh, yeah. Every no, it's a good song. step, you've taken turns to glue. But I think with the right production, this would be a fine album track. Next track is That Day Is Done. And the prototype for this song is on Spike. Deep, dark, truthful mirror. Same eyes, same lips, same life, and your tongue trips. Deep, dark, deep, dark, truthful mirror. Deep, dark, deep, dark, truthful mirror. I wouldn't say exactly the same song but they're close it gives you the feeling that it was now now when you put deep dark truthful mirror the verse of don't be careless love and then that day is done you get the feeling elvis had some kind of gospel thing going yeah. on at the time well his grandmother died right and he even said that this is the unhappy sequel to veronica i feel such sorrow i feel such shame i know i won't arrive on
Now, my favorite story that Elvis tells about this is that he brought the verse in to Paul, and Paul sat down and played the chorus. You need something like this. Played the chorus, and Paul said it was shocking. Really? He just sat down and played the chorus. Wow. There you know, that, that reminds me of Amadeus, <laughs> when Mozart's like making fun of Sally. Oh, you should do something like this. Maybe you should try this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He memorized the song as he walked in. There was a Well, they describe it as like New Orleans funeral music, and they had that brass band, which they called English Factory Band. This is a great. This is this is really good, and the lyrics are all really good too. Yeah, and this one's about Elvis's grandmother, as was Veronica. Yes, she sprinkles flowers in the dirt. That's when a thrill becomes a hurt. I know I'll never see her face. She walks away from my resting place. Yeah. It's a dark song. Mm -hmm. It's cool, though. It's a cool song. I like it. Again, could stand a more naturalistic production style, but it doesn't damage the song. From there, we go to How Many People, which, you know, Mm. it's a real low point (laughs) on the album (laughs) for, I think, both Chris and I. Don't you find it hilariously 90s sounding? Uh, Yeah. Like the 90s world music movement or something? Yeah. It's got that kind of... It's got, like, Paul chords in it, but it doesn't... I don't know. How many people stand in a line? How many people never get a chance to shine? If you can tell me, I'll play. Overproduction, And this time, we talked about this in the last episode. This time I do mean overproduction. Yeah. Too much stuff for the song to, to handle. Yeah, it's it's overdone and gaudy at times with the the choir synth pad. Ugh. Dude, come on. <laughs> Did anyone think that sounded cool even for five minutes in the 80s? No, I, I guess because it's on everything yeah. from the period. And the song's like dedicated to the memory of Chico Mendes. He died in 88, a Brazilian trade union leader and environmentalist who fought for the rainfall. I'm just like. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I mean. It sounded such a 90s sensibility in a way. Yeah. You know? Even Neil Dorsman was like, I didn't choose this to be on the album. Mm. Like, Mm. they chose it to be on the album. Hey, it's more fake reggae. Speaking of that, Jamaican musician Jab Bunny of the Cimarrons, who Paul produced uh, several years before, in 82 
you got to hear some of this. Sea Moon with a little luck. Mool of Kintyre. Reggae. Real Whoa. reggae, man. Well, let's like, play a little. Raga reggae. Like, okay. Yeah, this stuff is wild. He actually guests. He does some like percussion and some other things on this record. So I guess the disappointing thing of this song is I heard a rehearsal of this in the LimeWire days where Paul is playing through the chords and he's singing, he's humming the melody, but he's calling out the chord changes to the band. Mm. And I'm like, this song is awesome. <laughs> but then how many people have died? And you're like, oh. So is this your least favorite on the album? More than Rough Ride? Absolutely. Okay. Least favorite on the album. I know people are going to not be happy about that, but I just don't <laughs> think, I think you can cut this song and don't be careless love off the record. Yeah, okay. Compared to something like Figure of Eight or this one. Or again, the songs that are waiting in the demo stash. Yeah. We're not even halfway over, <laughs> folks. I hope you are in a comfortable position. So the last track on the vinyl, not on what's the canon album. Right. Motor of Love. Smile on my face There's a whole lot 
So this is where Chris Hughes and Ross Cullen come in. Odor of love. Take it away. What do you have to say? So supposedly Paul was looking for something that sounded like Drive by the Cars. Let's play a little bit of Drive. Talk about a ubiquitous song at the time. Boy, you couldn't get away from Drive. Really? That was oh, that big of a hit? out of control. They, huh. Yeah, I, it's one of the songs that I've heard it so many times that I will put it on here, I will edit it into this, but then I won't listen to it for 25 years. It's <laughs> enough already with Drive. Yeah. It's a beautiful song, and it's a it's kind of mesmerizing record. I mean, there, but there are better car songs. Sure. <laughs> Let's go. No, it's not, it's not even Rico Kasich, but it's, I think it was... Benjamin Orr. Yeah, it's a little strange that the other guy suddenly had the giant hit, but it's high 80s, but it's yeah. kind of tasteful, I guess. We'll see when I revisit it. Well, Greg Hawks is on Motor of Love, and he was in the band, The Cars. He's the keyboard guy. So Paul's just picking albums and songs he likes, and he's bringing in the original guys. Yeah. And they have the Fairlight on there, and I guess there's a story where... Uh, was it Chris Hughes produced it he put in 12 bars arranged the whole thing on the Fairlight plays it for Paul just like with That Day Is Done hears it and he jumps right to a piano and just plays the bridge once he's like oh something like that Mm -hmm. and the second take is the take on the record and he just 15 minutes wrote the bridge came back sang it that's it Mm -hmm. it's crazy Maybe we should play people a little bit of the demo. Yeah, that's a good idea. Keep asking 
So this demo is kind of fascinating, and it caused me to rethink the song a little bit. Yeah, me too. Because it's another case on this album where I think, hmm, maybe with different production and some tweaks to the lyrics, I'd love this. I just said I'm kind of okay with the drive production, but this is, production-wise, one of the most extreme 80s things McCartney ever did. Am I wrong? I've, I always thought it was okay. So I'm not, I don't hate it. You know, it's a real sing-along. Yeah. I kind of always liked it a little in spite of myself. I always hated the production, and it was always like, I'm going to put up with this production for this nice kind of kind of gospel-y. Yeah. Well, he says Heavenly Father. That's the only thing. He says that's Heavenly I mean. Father, and that's that's the part we don't we don't know what's going on there. But Well, Paul's never really talks about that, but he's well, like, he always wear a smile, it. man. Like, that's his philosophy. He actually said, I thought of it like Mother Mary. Other people have speculated it's about his father, but I don't hear any evidence of that. No. So the next track, or the last track that's canon now, is Ue Le Sole, which is another Trevor Horn. Is this a song? Trevor Horn says it's a piece of entertainment. <laughs> First thing we should address, kind of in keeping with our Press to Play discussion, is whether it's part of the album. Because the argument I made for Press to Play would now make this part of this album, if I stick, with my, stick, stick by my guns on that. But that's true. It's also true that, you know, you can like something or not. I want those last three tracks of Press to Play to be there. I don't want this to be there. So this time, I'm going to argue that it's not part of the album. Well, if we're going to go that far, we should also say there's a 1990 Japanese tour edition of this album okay. in which there are nine extra tracks after okay. the tracks we've just gone through. Well, I guess I'll repeat my Press to Play argument, which is, <laughs> which is against what I'm saying right now. Is I have uh, the CDs here. I have the original Flowers in the Dirt here. It does not distinguish Ue Le Soleil as a, a separate or special track. And the 93 Parlophone also does not. So the actual bonus tracks have asterisks. This song has no asterisk. So it's presented as though it were part of the album. It's more of a coda. Yeah. Or like the Heba Aloha part to Hello Goodbye. Right. But in album form. Right. Because it's long, and but it's, it's just a phrase, and that phrase is French for... Where's the sun? And then work, because he says something about, like, do work. Oh. I don't know. Can someone translate I this for us? I can't say I've listened closely enough to get those details. Um, we have the demo from 75. Yes. So he must have just had this in his head. Because they presented him the first 50 seconds of the track. Right. Like, what do you got? And they and he's like, oh, I got something for that. So again, he's just pulling from his archive. Well, I'm happy to skip this one in my own listening. I did review it for the podcast, but... You don't like the wood saw? I didn't notice. Maybe I should listen again. Yeah, there's, the he's saw. like, and there's photos of him with a big saw, sawing wood in the studio. <laughs> I like that. How about pull everything else down and just leave yeah. the wood saw? Well, it's not really Paul on anything. Like, maybe he plays a guitar, but it's it's the other guys bringing in tracks, so...
so that ends the album. So that leads us to Party Party. It seems like they're just in the studio jamming and then there's like all these remixes and it's it's like McCartney 3, but a parody of like what McCartney 3 could have been. I don't think there's a whole lot to say about it. So now we have Flying to My Home, which is really a good song, but it's recorded so strangely. It is recorded strangely, but I don't mind it. Not at all. And First of all, I love the introduction. Yeah. I, I mean, that is some beautiful double track stacked harmony. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. I mean, the intonation is, it, it um, just resonates. Um, yeah. yeah. Some auto harp on there. That was given to Linda by Johnny Cash. During the New Moon Over Jamaica sessions we talked about last episode. Yeah, and that vocal is just sped up a bit. That's why you get that yeah, kind of sound. That but weird it's cool. Squeezed voice sound. It's a fun B side. Speaking of B sides, how do you feel about the next track? This one, the Club Lovejoys mix. Yeah. <laughs> I here are my notes. I wrote Wow, period, shit, exclamation point. A song very similar to that is Good Sign, Good which sign. I think is pretty cool. Good Sign's kind of cool. Duncan Bridgman and mixed by Joe Dwarniak. Like, this is a pretty cool one. It was on this one, 12-inch. It's, it's just, I don't know, it's it's cool. He's dance music-y things, but he's got that sweet McCartney hook when he first comes in with the vocal. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Yeah, it's a good melody. Yeah. I love the way my heart beat increases when you walk in the room. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool stuff. I love the way that my heart rate increases when you walk in the room. The chemicals that my body releases dispelling feelings of gloom. That's good sign. See the meters moving. That's good sign. Just keep improving. That's good sign. See the meters moving. That's good sign. And I guess David Clayton of Simply Red was around, and he was a dance guy. They brought in to produce some stuff, and he thought he was going to do a big portion of the album, but they don't even know what he did exactly. But mm. listening to these bonus tracks, he must have had a hand yeah. in some of these yeah. things. He remembers working on four tracks. They, they also gave us one to Claire Fisher, who added some saxes and trumpets and a couple oh, of trombones. Mm-hmm. And some percussion from Alex Acuna, a former member of the jazz fusion group Weather Report. So Just I, to be clear, I see it as B-side material. Yeah. I wouldn't put it on the album, but as B-sides yeah. go, I think it's a fun one. Same as this next song, The First Stone. First Stone. That's collaboration with Hamish. Yes, and it's the B-side to this one. And it was inspired by watching TV evangelists and their moralizing and censorship. Mm. And they just came up with this in the studio. And it's maybe, again, better than something like a couple of the songs on the record Yeah, I mean, it's an interestingly kind of edgy rock production. It's some really bluesy, kind of cool bluesy chords in the verse, and I, I kind of like this one. Yeah, I would take this over Motor of Love. <laughs>
Next track is Same Love. I like Same Love. It's a radio-friendly ballad. I'm surprised it didn't get included because it's such an obvious single. But yeah. Well, it shows up eventually as the B-side to Beautiful Night. But they okay. included it on the archive edition here. Mm-hmm. And that's Nicky Hopkins on the piano. That's a good one. I, I think it's good too. Yeah, that's one of the one of the batch of songs that I discovered back in the late '90s, where I didn't know where it was from. I could tell it was fairly recent, but where I just thought, "Wow, what a little gem! How is this just a cast off?" Yeah. So then there's the 1990 Japanese tour edition of this record, and I'll just read through this track list if there's any that you want to touch on here. So if you were in Japan and you bought this record on tour, you got a second CD, so you got a double album. You have The Long and Winding Road recorded live, Loveliest Thing, Rough Ride Extended, Ue Le Soleil, The 7-inch Mix, Mama's Little Girl, Same Time Next Year, Party Party, and P.S. Love Me Do. Hmm. Pretty fun for the Japanese fans. Not bad. I've got the booklet from the 1989-1990 tour. I went to see Paul McCartney in summer of 1990 in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I watched Paul McCartney forget the words to yesterday. It was the most memorable thing. That's cool. He forgot the words and he kind of went, and then continued. (laughs) (laughs) He made a face and then went on. This tour book's really interesting, you know, because it has all this... It covers a lot. He kind of goes over his albums. Here we have a page on Wings, and the, the title is Very Ballsy. Wow. Yeah, and he talks in here about how great Ram is, and, you know, it's, it goes through every album. I mean, he talks about his favorite songs, too. Like, he does. 
Isn't daytime, nighttime suffering one of his favorites? Rupert and punk rock is a Ah. section in here. Yeah. So after that, we have two sets of demos with Elvis Costello. The first being acoustic demos. First is the lovers that never were. And that's really the top of the charts of all those acoustic demos. It's a special thing and everybody who knows it seems to recognize that it's really special. Yeah, Elvis, there's a quote, the real lost gem from that batch of songs, one of these days, one of us should cut it, is the lovers that never were. In the original condition, it's something Dusty Springfield or Jackie DeShannon would have recorded. Paul straightened it out in the studio and wanted it to go a different way. There you go. But the demo is, I'd say, one of the great vocal performances of his solo career. He's standing up playing a 12-string guitar, and weirdly enough, I'm playing piano just thinking... Don't fuck up. He's really <laughs> singing this. He's singing a ballad in the voice of I'm down. He's right over my shoulder singing all this wild, distorted stuff. I'd never heard him do this before. It is a special vocal. He's got it ratcheted up pretty high. Way high. I have always needed somebody girl. Oh, but I close. The next is Tommy's Coming Home, and this one is just not released, period. And it's a unsentimental tale written about a soldier who is briefly mourned before his widow is seduced in a train compartment. Kind of a cool song. I love this, all forms of this song. How do you feel about it? This one again, the demo... I think is incredible. This mm-hmm. is real, like authentic 60s folk rock, fascinating lyrics. And we get to the further versions and it gets weaker and weaker. Yeah, weaker and weaker. This original demo is really a wonderful thing. She was counting out the window of an outbound train, all the bows of the telegraph, and the rocket by rhythm in the song of the rails. Almost April Fool's Day. 
Elvis said that the image is of like a hawk hovering over the little animals, like in the wool, in, huh. the, in the wilderness. And he, you know, they said, he said, how do we get that in the story? And, it, and they were like, a war widow on a train. And maybe it was just too dark for Paul and not dark enough for Elvis or maybe, something. yeah, interesting. The next track, 20 Fine Fingers, and I thought this song was 25 fingers for the past 15 years. Wait, 20 Fine Fingers? 20 Fine Fingers. Look online and all on the track lists. 20 Fine Fingers. So is it about a three-way, you know? Huh. What's it about? I guess the math on that sort of checks out. Was it 20 Fine Fingers between two people, or is it a third person getting 20 fingers? But, I mean, it's unreleased. We don't know. They've never really talked about it. The quote I pulled is, When we mixed Punch the Clock outside of London, I'd asked a local cab driver what people did for fun in a nearby village, and he replied, Oh, it's all wife-swapping and witchcraft around here. Interesting. There you go. Because this song's very, very early Beatles rock and roll. It's... Very. Yeah. There's no pop affectation here. He lies about her and perfume. The pretty clothes are scattered round the room And it's so like candy Here lies the lipstick and the face The colored tablets keeping it all in place And it's so like candy so Like Candy's the next one. Yeah, and Elvis's version on Muddy Like a Rose is the one. That's the, yeah, that's but the But we have version. a really good demo with Paul singing mm-hmm. that's very good. Right. Not It doesn't have the edge that the no. Elvis version has. But no, he's delivering it. He's singing it very well. Beautifully, yeah. Here lies the powder and perfume Pretty clothes are scattered round the room And it's so like candy Here lies the lipstick and the face The colored tablets keep it all in place And it's so like candy Why must it be the one that I have to love so? 
the video you sent to me where he just looks crazy oh, the big yeah. beard and the long hair he yeah. looks like he's going through it well man. that was his look at this time <laughs> yeah so like candy it, it's a real he sounds very john lennon it reminds me of i'm losing you a little yeah. bit yeah i feel such sorrow i feel such shame i know i won't arrive on time before Next is That Day Is Done. More revelation that this should have been an album, this demo. Have you heard the version that's Elvis and the Fairfield Four? It was on Elvis's Greatest Hits. Yes. Now that mm-hmm. is the best version of the song. Yeah, very Where the four African-American gospel singers just do in the harmonies yes. and just play that right here. Still in my heart, never show. By the way, I should mention, I have this cassette tape. Chris Forehand, my buddy, sent me this, I want to say around 95, maybe? Maybe even 94. And it's a tape, a bootleg tape that he made for me of all these songs that we're talking about, plus some extras. And that one is on here as well that you just yeah. mentioned. So I have this strange kind of bootleg. This is yeah. from the Elvis Costello mailing list at the time. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I knew all this stuff, you know, 90 minutes worth of Elvis and all here so don't be careless love the next tracks on there yes i think that's the version too like 
mm-hmm. where they actually he takes the chorus up the octave, you know, instead of bringing it down. And it sounds a lot like Help. Yeah, Help era Beatles. Yeah. I understand what you're saying by mid, mid-era mid Beatles. Now. My Brave Face, the next track, that one is just about as good as the studio version. Maybe a bit better, but... Yeah. Now, this there's a version of it that they did in the studio before the album version that's quite nice. Yes. The demo version doesn't have all the changes yet. So during the verse, they're just pounding on the same chord. But then in this next demo they did, they started to figure out the chord changes in the verse. And right. It really sounds good. I've been living in style, unaccustomed as I am to the luxury life. Next track's Playboy to a Man. Now, this ends up on Mighty Like a Rose and almost like a self-parody that Elvis is doing. But the version, the real superior version that I brought up on the last episode is this demo from 88. It's just unbelievable. Sounds great. I would never have guessed from Elvis's version, which is mm, flippant. Like a really goofy vocal. It's a, forgive my language, a big fuck you almost to Paul. Almost feels that way, yeah. I would never have guessed from Elvis's version on Mighty Like a Rose that this could be such a good sounding song, but this 88 demo you're talking about is beautiful. Great. Do what you own way, want too many nights. You treated her like 
From there, Pads, Paws, and Claws, we have a demo that we mentioned ends up on Spike. On first hearing Spike, Veronica was the hit, and I was in love with it. I couldn't wait to get this because Elvis was my hero at the time. So Veronica met all my expectations, and Pads, Paws, and Claws was like, hmm? He played this live on David Letterman at the time, hmm. just him and guitar. It was very, it was venomous. It was really something, but this record on Spike is not so. Yeah, he was going through something in the 80s for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Elvis Costello. He was always going through something. He's a feline tormentor, not any part of the wife. With a drunk town lament, he leads her a miserable life. But when it's full of that beer champagne, she pats paws, pats paws and claws. But if you should wake up in some terrible time And it don't know if it's so-so But it's so surprised it's alive Come on, little honey, let me under your hive She pats paws, pats paws and claws She pats Next tracks, I Don't Want to Confess, and there's not a, even a studio version of this one. And I think it's a great song. Yeah, it's really good. Why did they leave this one This off? is a cassette demo. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's an act, it's a bonus on the archive edition, right? A bonus, yeah. It's not yeah. even like in this, yeah, we're in bonus era. Yeah, this is a wonderful song. It's got a kind of a traditional ballad set of chord changes in the chorus, I Don't Want to Confess section of the song. Mm-hmm. But it, it would hold up really well as a record. Really, really well. And I guess we won't bother to list again all the things on Flowers of the Dirt that we <laughs> re- replace with this. Go, go, go. Did you have to confess? Why'd you drag up that old mess? Did you have to be so indiscreet? What happened to keeping them guessing? Black dress won't have 
track shallow grave is one that ends up on all this useless beauty and that's a it's a good song great production the i like elvis's final version when i'm falling sleep, hope that i'll be buried deep let me be the one that jesus saves even good children got shallow graves so throw another clown to the lions throw another joan on the blaze cast me away on the cruel calm ocean and leave me for days and days and days and days i won't lie in this poor shallow grave i won't lie i won't lie in this poor shallow Like the rich, they all end up in a ditch in this world of fools and knaves. Even good children got shallow graves. The tinker, the tailor, the fabulous fire. Nobody gets out of this alive. Throwing of the clown to the liars, throwing of the Joan in a blaze. Cast it away on a cool, calm ocean and leave it for days and days and days and days and days. Finally, Mistress and Maid. So that is a cassette demo, and it's very bad shape. For some reason, the only cassette that exists of it sounds really crummy. I almost want to say that my old tape here that my friend sent me has a better sounding Mistress and Maid, just mm. in terms of the dub itself. Yeah. Strange they couldn't get a better one than I have for the archive edition, but this is a pretty good song. It's a little, the, the lyrics are a bit too ornate. Elvis pulled the word soubrette out of mm. his ass. Sure, he saw it somewhere and wanted to put it in his song. But anyway, it's pretty good song. It ended up on Off the Ground in a rather sterile production. She said, come in, my dear. You're looking tired tonight. Your bath is drunk. Let me loosen your tie and fix you your usual drink. Settles back and takes a magazine, kicks off his shoes as he studies the fall of every soubrette. So, where are the flowers that he used to bring? Every endearing remark reminds her of passionate promises. That he only made in the dark In her bed She was 
back of his head. Look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm afraid. Look what it's come to now, I'm just your mistress and maid. So yes, yeah, so that is, those are the acoustic demos, and then the track list for the studio demos in 88. Elvis was trying to produce Paul's album that was aborted. And some of these tracks ended up as the basis for the final tracks that ended up on 89, if that makes sense. Acoustic demos, studio demos, final sessions produced by other people. So those are The Lovers That Never Were, 20 Fine Fingers, Tommy's Coming Home, Soul Like Candy, You Want Her Too, That Day Is Done, Playboy To A Man, Don't Be Careless Love, and finally My Brave Face. Was recorded by Peter Henderson and produced by Paul and Elvis, all at Hog Hill in '87 slash '88. And I think that about wraps up the songs in this album. There's an unusual facet to this album that Figure of Eight has had actually another version that was recorded live by his touring band. There's least as a single, and it's longer. It's five minutes and eleven seconds as compared to the album version, which is three minutes and 25 seconds. Mm. And, you know, that's pretty unusual. That's extremely unusual. For a song, right? Yeah, yeah let's put out the longer version. <laughs> yeah. Very, very strange. But, you know, I also failed to mention that the lyrics in that song, I really think are very clever. Like, if you really pull those things apart, the whole nothing more than a tape loop in a big dance hall. I meant to quote that earlier. What a great line. So good. I mentioned a few moments ago that my hero at that time, although still liked Paul, was really Elvis Costello. I was 16 and I was into Elvis Costello. If you're 16 and it's the 80s and you're into Elvis Costello, you think you're too cool for Paul McCartney. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, Elvis's praise of Paul was part of what got me back into Paul. Because I read some articles, some interviews with Elvis, and he just, he said, listen, this guy is an amazing singer. This guy writes the best songs. He said, I remembered being on tour in 78. You can't believe what a treat with a little luck was at that time. So he was really very effusive in his praise of of Paul McCartney. He wasn't cynical about it. Oh, and we didn't mention the writing process those guys were using. They were writing a song a day. In about three hours. Yeah. So they'd come in, write the song get it partially worked up, run down to the studio. So that, for example, it's true of all these demos, but that Lovers That Never Were, you're hearing that right after they wrote it. Yeah. They went down and recorded it right then. It's crazy. Yeah. Fresh off the skillet, as Paul Hot said. off the skillet, as Hot, There you go, yeah. hot off the skillet.
This album was the longest charting album in Paul's career, 49 weeks on the charts. Wow. So yeah, almost a full year. It was nominated for a Grammy in 1990, Best Engineered Non-Classical Album, and a Brit Award, My Brave Face, for Best Music Video, nominated that did not win. You know, it hit number one in the UK album charts that year. Um, and, you know, it was top 20 everywhere except for America, 21. Mm. So, you know, this sold a good amount of copies. It went gold in the U.S., platinum in the U.K., gold in Germany, double platinum in Spain, gold in France, Japan, Canada, Sweden, Switzerland. The last thing I have for us is some press. I pulled some press if you want to hear it. Press to play. Press to play on the press for flowers in the dirt. Reviewing for all music, critic Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote of the album, Paul McCartney must not only have been conscious of his slipping commercial fortunes, but he must have realized that his records hadn't been treated seriously for years, so he decided to make a full-fledged comeback effort with Flowers in the Dirt. For the Tribune, David Silverman wrote, Paul is back. Well, almost. And that album was a welcome, if not wholly fantastic, return to the fabest of the Fab Four. Rolling Stone, Anthony DeCurtis, June 89. But McCartney set out to hone his edge on Flowers in the Dirt, and he succeeds to a significant degree. Part of the effort involved writing songs with punk veteran Elvis Costello, four of which turn up on this record. It should come as no surprise that the lines in question, she sprinkles flowers in the dirt, that's when a thrill becomes a hurt, occur in one of those collaborations, the spiritual sounding but unsentimental, that day is done. The soft spots weaken but fail to undermine Flowers in the Dirt's essential force. McCartney comes alive on the album, and if he hits the road, as rumored this fall, you know, which he mm-hmm. does, he will have half a dozen or so new tunes that can ably hold their own alongside a standing repertoire. In the case of one of the finest songwriters in the history of rock, that's no mean accomplishment. I find Earlwine, by the way, to be a very fair... Yeah. Pitchfork says, it's the rarest of things, a Paul McCartney record where you can sense his need to be loved. Maybe if McCartney's confidence hadn't been shaken by Press to Play's commercial underperformance, and if his competitiveness hadn't been stoked by Harrison's success, he would have settled on a single collaborator. But the parade of producers and Flower in the Dirt suggests he's trying every style in hopes of a hit. That's the divide between the initial release of Flowers in the Dirt and the reissue. The 1989 LP is made for a mass audience while the reissue reveals the art lurking underneath the gloss. Hmm. And that's what I think we discussed today. That's what we're trying to get to. Yeah, if we're just talking the album overall, forget the Elvis demos and all the secret stuff we know. If you're just talking about the album overall, it suffers from all the things that people accuse press to play of in terms of the production, but worse. And this is just my take on things. It just doesn't have... Where, where's pretty little head? Where's talk more talk? Where's however absurd? Like, where's that crazy? You want the big wacky moment. The like, what the hell is that? I want some double songs. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear some fragments stitched together. I like that stuff. You know, what is it? Loveliest thing. He tried. Mm, Well, they just fall. It wasn't a double song though. It was putting pieces together to make a single coherent song. You want band on the run parts two and three. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do. Yeah. I want stuff like that. So that's it for Flowers in the Dirt. I want to thank everybody for listening. 
Remember to write in to us. Take it away podcast at gmail.com. We're everywhere. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Keep writing us. And I cannot believe the amount of donations that came in from our last episode. Mm. You guys really heard what we had to say, and we are well on our way this season, and we can't wait. What's up next? Off the ground. Off the ground. Why don't we leave you with a little bit of that? is Martha My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.